Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, has that new president. No, not me, not Doc, although... I was called El Presidente by one of our correspondents. Instead, it is a new US president. But we'll get to that. First, I'm Scott Phillips. I'll introduce my wonderful, if all long time, co-host, Dr. Anirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. How are you? I am great. I am uh, not feeling presidential, but other than that, I'm great. (laughs) I was called El Presidente by one of our correspondents. Of course, we're recording this on Thursday morning, mate, and there is a new bloke in the White House. Uh, That is President Joe Biden replacing President Donald Trump, who is uh, off to Florida. Uh, And uh, look, we'll talk a little bit about that. Not too much, because frankly, there's been enough politics over the last couple of months (laughs) into every other bit of news media, but the market was up and and it was up quite a lot for some stocks. So we'll talk a little bit about that, mate. I'm gonna, I'm gonna for one last time, hopefully for everybody's sake, talk about this bloody disaster that was the early access super scheme, a ten billion dollar disaster. Let's talk about that. We'll talk about some spectacular retail sales growth here in Australia, and Citibank's response and and frankly expectations for investors as a result. Afterpay, mate, does it, does it go any other way than up? It doesn't seem like it. New share price records for Afterpay Tech continues speaking of afterpay to shape our lives and we will get into the full mailbag mate what do you reckon we get on with it let's get on with it let's do it let's do it (laughs) motley fool money for more go to fool.com.au forward slash triple m all right buddy so look (laughs) the elephant in the room uh, is a a joe biden sized elephant which is not very big but uh but still let me keep my metaphor um we are as i said recording this thursday morning the 21st of january if you're listening to this after the fact uh most of our stuff is a little bit contemporary and timely so if you're listening to this three months later um there's still some lessons hopefully but just remember that the data is old uh who knows you know what would be fascinating to go back to some of our old podcast doc actually listen to what we said about things maybe maybe i want to maybe i don't want to we might have been uh we might have been um unfortunately uh not very prescient so let's let's not do that um so Joe Biden in the White House, mate, we knew what was happening. Uh, I'm I'm relieved that it went without incident, quite frankly. Um, and I'm not a predictor nor a doom and gloomer, but I have to say after the riots in the Capitol only a week or so ago, um, you know, I, I was a little bit concerned that there might have been more trouble. So that was pretty cool. Um, I don't really have much more to say about that. I, I, first thing I guess I'll ask you, mate, is your thoughts about a changing administration in the White House and the impact on markets and investors, if anything. What do you? How do you think about whether it's here in Australia or over in the US? And feel free to either be gener- generic and general or specific about the US circumstance. How do you think about changing administrations when it comes to the impact on our investments? Yeah, like so. In general, I don't worry too much about um, administrations. The reason I don't worry about them, like you know, you have a Democrat now in White House, maybe. in you know, maybe in four years you'll have a Republican, right? And and or 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 maybe in eight years you'll have a Republican, but it's either going to be a Republican or a Democrat because that's sort of a two-party system. And you know, the, and and it's it's very similar to what we have here, right? I mean, you're either going to have Labour or Liberal, and yep. and you can sort of guess the contours of policy. Um, so kind of you know the way I think of this is well, there's that policy, there's this policy, and over time, over longish time, you kind of get an average. <laughs> So if you can be happy with that average, then it is this, then it's okay, right? So that's my first take, largely. I guess uh, um, you know, short term, I think, and you talked about the market being up uh, overnight in the U.S. Well, that seems like a more of a sigh of relief than anything else because you know, I mean, Joe Biden ran on a increasing the tax um, a tax rate policy, 
so so there's that so that I mean, that has negative impact on on earnings it has negative impact on earnings it, it, it theoretically should actually have a downward pressure uh, all else being equal like i mean you know, unless the stocks are significantly undervalued i mean it should have a negative impact yeah. but but here's i think what i think you know i've had to guess the couple of things the market might be thinking about uh, one is the market police is baking in uh, big stimulus spending right so you know stimulus can be actually inflationary in um, so that has other implications which is over time rates actually should go up which again is negative for for uh, for uh, i guess valuation but in, in the short term i think stimulus is can propel earnings that's one uh, there are expectations that you know there might be more green related policies there's expectation that there's going to be more uh, consultation and a consultative approach to uh, global trade and things like that that actually should be net positive for everyone right um, there's there's some chatter i read uh, online or you know some actually this is not chatter this is you know the trade representative of biden has basically said while they agree disagree with how uh, the prior administration went about dealing with china they actually agree in principle on their approach to china so in other words that's not going to change uh so there's some some big things there so i think you know i think the trade tension with china is actually not going to go away um so that's something to keep bear in mind and uh, yeah so i mean again like i don't invest largely based on these trends but i mean those are some of the high level trends i think you know the trade tension stay more cons- consultative approach maybe that you know whether it's with australia new zealand europe uh you know uh, the climate change will become a big deal because they're going they're joining back paris um in the paris accord uh, there will be more consultation on that. There's probably going to be they're going to go back to WHO. So there's going to be more uh, consultation in terms of you know just vaccines distribution and things like that. It's a global health. I, I think so. Those are the net sort of give you know puts and takes. I think, uh, and you know depending on where one sits in their belief, people will make different opinions about how these things work out. <laughs> so so I'm not going to try to put what I think about these things, but that's sort of what I see right now. I think it's a fascinating point actually, mate. There's there's so much in the psychological literature about the fact that humans tend to form an opinion and then try and find rational facts to back it up, right? And so you kind of convince yourself that whatever your political view is, um, you're right because and you, you find that the specific data points, and again, I don't, I, I'm pointing as much at myself as everybody else, um, we all do it, right? It's, it's human nature to literally do it that way. We kind of form these instinctive conclusions and then, you know, the hardest part, to, the hardest thing to learn is to, to actually undo that stuff, which is the, frankly the beauty of science, right? The idea that uh, all ideas are, are only one, you know, uh, disproof away from being uh, updated or improved. That's kind of partly the, the, the function of kind of economic progress as well as, uh, or scientific progress, I should say, probably. Um, but then the economic progress part is the business kind of does the same thing, right? There's always the chance for a better mousetrap or a better whatever. Um, in our era, that's been tech dominated mostly, though not entirely, right? Just new ways of doing things, new products that are invented and, and new ideas that come to the market. So that, that I think is, is a really important point. And I agree with almost everything you've said, I have to say. I don't think I can really um, add so much other than, you know, we know that historically there is very little correlation between the party in government and the market result. <laughs> so there's always that. Uh, our, our ex-colleague uh, Morgan Housel's written plenty of times on that. If you go back, I think we're back 100 odd years. Um, and if you literally look at it by party, the differences between the returns by party is almost zero. In effect, I think it's even closer to zero if you back out some of the big impacts like the Great Depression, for example, or other plants where it's just literally so phenomenally impactful that um, you know it's, it's hard to put it down to a particular administration. And so the, if you back out some of that stuff and say, well, in normal times, in air quotes, although I guess we're not in normal times now, there's not much change. The other thing I think probably is worth saying, mate, you, you kind of referred to it. Australia has three-year terms. The US has four-year terms. 
our investment horizon is longer than presidential terms. So that's the other thing, right? So if you're if 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 your investment horizon is, is longer than the presidential term, making a decision based on that presidential term is almost oh, looks like completely nuts. I guess you can trade it short term if you're good at that sort of stuff, but it, it kind of defeats the purpose, right? I'm thinking I'm going to hold my stocks longer than that person is going to hold office, or at least until the next election, they may well get reelected. But that, that very idea is almost the key point, right? Why would you, if you had if you had a viewer that was your that was your time horizon, why would you respond to anything in shorter timeframes? It's um it, it's a good reminder that sometimes these things don't matter as much as they might. Mate, um, I will say though that some of the big tech companies had a great night. So Wednesday night our time, Amazon, Google, Apple, I think they were all up. Um, there's one other one which I'll get to in a minute for different reasons. I. I I speculated this morning when I saw the data, I'd be interested in your thoughts. There was a lot of push by the um, Trump administration in its, in its last months to investigate some of these big tech giants to potentially be broken up. And there was a sense that the Biden administration will be, will be less keen to do that. Was that any part of that rally? I mean, we saw 4 and 5% rallies for Amazon, Apple, Google. Uh, the market was up one and a bit, which was lovely. But I, I don't know. You, you look at the, I, I'm an Amazon and Google shareholder. I'm very happy that it's happened. But I look at that and go... You know what? Nothing happened in that six or seven trading hours in the US that means Amazon's worth 5% more than it was when we started the day in, in, in any material sense. And so I, the best I can, and look, there's no, not a lot of value in speculating on single day movements, quite frankly, but the best I could speculate was the market believes that tech is a better bet in a Biden administration than a Trump administration. But again, that's not new news, right? The organization itself wasn't wasn't the, wasn't the key event. The election's been run and won. Uh, that should have been priced in already. Yeah, that's a good good point. So I think I read something interesting on the on the Fin this morning. Uh, only actually, don't I, I couldn't discover the article because I was going to tweet something about it, but I couldn't find it because it got buried under the the election thing. Uh, yes. So there was this piece where um, I think there is a U.S. Uh, business body that has basically come back and said, you know, all these regulations that you're trying to make about, um, and this is specific to Australia, uh, they try to make about the news feeds and, you know, the compensation for the news feeds yeah, yeah. is actually uh, is actually legal uh, per the Australia-US free trade. Um, okay. And therefore, if you go ahead with this, <laughs> this is basically acting against US companies. Uh, you know, so, so I think here's, I've always had this view that I think no country, especially the one that propels a technology, is going to accept another country's regulation of their business. Um, this just doesn't happen. And, and uh, this doesn't happen because it's like saying, I want my crown jewels to be regulated by other countries. Well, it's for the other countries to make their own crown jewels if they have it. <laughs> or if you're using somebody else's crown jewels, you have no choice but to follow whatever the other people say. Right? Yeah. That, that is the base, base reality. Now you can regulate things, but they can also make things difficult for you. Um, so that's the other reality. So I think to me, regulation of big tech is entirely, in my mind, an American question. And if it suits the Americans, for whatever reason they want to regulate it, then they can create like, you know, some sort of, you know, global view or global consensus. So this is how we want to regulate it. But I think if the European regulators think that they can regulate it, mm-hmm. thus far, for example, like, so I'll give an example. So Europe has this GDPR. So, so GDPR is a privacy regulation for data. Now, it's very nicely intended because it does, from a very high level basic point of view, guarantees privacy of data and says that well data belongs to the person however you have to look at the unintended consequence of that the cost for actually doing that is so high that the only companies that can do it are the ones who actually have all the data (laughs) 
<laughs> right, right. right? So, so sometimes regulation can actually stymie development, mm. uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I would not, you know, um, I would not be far fetched to say that you know, the people who make these regulations are actually <laughs> probably understand the least about technology and how it moves yeah. and how it yeah. what it does, and they're ill placed to actually make these decisions. So, so I mean, that's where we are roughly in terms of regulation. So that, that's, you know, again, I don't know, have a view as to whether or not uh, there is, um, you know, what the American politics is going to do with respect to big tech. Um, you could say big tech has dominance, but big tech, does it have dominance enough that it has changed pricing? I mean, actually, there's been a downward pressure on pricing, right? I mean, if you think about Google and Facebook, yes, they have influence on news dissemination, and maybe you can regulate that, but they have no pricing influence in the sense that they're not actually it's free for consumers right um, and Amazon might have dominance on on I don't know retail but you know it basically you know when it ships me stuff and says hey you don't like it I'll just give you a refund right and the prices are not you know <laughs> are cheap it's not trying to gouge me so it is very difficult from a consumer point of view to argue even that these things are actually anti-consumers right so my suspicion. If I had to bet on something, I would say there's going to be regulation in terms of how uh, content is distributed and how content is spread, and what sort of where are the boundaries in terms of of um, content distribution and who has what responsibility. But I, I think the the potential for big tech, um, you know, breakup is pretty low. On the other hand, I'll also point this out as my final comment is that actually. In some cases, a split can uh, can unlock value. Um, so you know, splitting up Amazon into like you know Amazon Web Services and say, for example, um, you know Amazon Retail can actually be a boon for shareholders. So there's a lo- lot of different things here um, at play. And, and I guess my final point is, if you let capitalism do its thing, then Amazon's you don't have to displace Amazon. Somebody better than Amazon will come and displace Amazon. Right, because Amazon did displace Walmart, and it's not displaced by, by displaced. I don't mean that it's going to be destroyed. Right, it means yeah. that from being preeminent retail to being preeminent retail online, somebody else is going to displace Amazon. And that's what happens. That's the cycle of life. Right. right. So I, I think if you just let life do its thing, uh, and people compete on, on mm. those things instead of trying to create too many rules, um, mm. I think it'll be okay. Like it, mate. I um, I will say for what it's worth. I uh, I, I hear you. Uh, I have a slightly different thought as to what politicians might do, whether they should or not. It's a different question. I think from a pragmatic perspective, I'm I'm far from convinced the breakup uh, pressure is over. Uh, whether they should or not, whether they're capable of it, whether they're the right people to do it, I don't actually disagree with any of those things. But whether they will, because politicians are politicians and regulators are regulators, I think that might be a different a different question. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, I'm I'm not prepared to to say that that particular conversation is over, at least from a from a regulatory perspective. But we'll see how we go, mate. Um, let's let's move on from that one because it, it's it's kind of worth now. I'm going to spend a little bit of time, time out of time. Um, I just want to highlight the. The, the the early access super scheme that the Morrison government brought in as part of the COVID response. And there's no real new news on that. I, I, I had someone tweeted at me yesterday and, and my reply was, I've never been so sorry to be right in my life. Um, there's some research put out by Industry Super Australia uh, and it was about New South Wales. So we're not doing it because it's where New South Wales as it turns out, but this is a, a specific report they have produced that we saw reported in or nine uses of the link I've got here. Um, here's the... Here's the Here's the first two sentences, first two paragraphs of this particular article, mate. It reads, more than 225,000 
New South Wales workers effectively wiped out their entire retirement savings following the implementation of the government's superannuation scheme. Designed to help those burdened by COVID-19 restrictions, the scheme allowed a total of 20000 to be taken from superannuation accounts over two financial years. Last sentence, new data compiled by Industry Super Australia shows that more than 1 million residents in New South Wales accessed the scheme, withdrawing around $10 billion. Um, mate, I, I, I don't even know I don't even know what I want to say other than I just this, this is going to have ramifications for decades for those poor bastards who either had to or were simply felt like they could so they, they did <laughs> um, and you know I'm sure they like the new jet skis and TVs and cars they bought with the money um, their retirement though I'm I, you know if you invest it reasonably you know averagely some numbers say that's worth up to 80 grand in retirement if you invest it well I think it's worth well over $100,000 in fact probably closer to 200 grand in retirement um, I hope the Jessica is worth it because that that missing cash in retirement is really really going to hurt a lot of people in, in very material ways when it comes to their retirement savings and retirement income so I don't, I don't really have a question for you I don't really have a you know a broader point to make I wish I had a better solution um, the only thing I will say is if you're listening to this and you did access it um, if you desperately needed to I have no condemnation if you didn't need to I'm kind of a little bit annoyed with you <laughs> so consider, consider consider a gentle rebuke um, in either case I desperately want to just listen, let our listeners know if you did do that even if you didn't but if you did do that please try find a way to put some more money back in super as a result right like I get it, it, it the money's gone it is what it is uh, but please do your future self a favor and put some more money back in because when you get to 63, 5, 7 and you realize that your super is less than it could have been and you think man, I wish I'd done something about it. Trust me when I say, now is the time to help your future self uh, because it costs a whole lot less to put the money in now than to try and find that compounded value. If you've got to put you know, 80 grand aside at 63 or 20 or 10 grand aside now, you know what? <laughs> put the money aside now. I know it's hard to get. I know it's hard to save, uh, but please do, do, do yourself a favor. Do me a favor if you don't do anything else and, and save some more money. Try, try and refill that gap if you can because uh, your retirement will be worse off as a result if you don't. So I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Doc, any, any thoughts on that, mate, or will I just move on? No, I think like, you know, you've summarized it so beautifully. There's like nothing left for me to add. So, you know, I'll just say I agree with like, you know, what you said. It just makes me sad. Anyway, um, mates, let's go to positive news. I <laughs> there must have been a memo issued on Monday because we saw three retailers who delivered sales growth of between 23 and 25%. One was 23, one was 24, one was 25%. Um, all in the space of two trading days on the ASX. I don't know if, don't know if they got the same memo. Um, it certainly, look, so there's, there's a couple things going on here, mate. The first is, that's big. Um, the companies, of course, were Super Retail and their Rebel Super Cheap Auto and JB, uh, JB, Super Rebel Super Cheap Auto and BCF, boating, camping, fishing businesses, all grew really, really nicely. JB Hi-Fi, which managed to grow sales 24%, I'm pretty sure. And Maggie Beer Holdings, the, the company that uh, makes the, that, that particular brand and a couple of other brands, the Maggie Beer brand was up 25%. These are all the first half of the financial year, which if you think about it, mate, July 1 to December 31, that was a heck of a six-month period. Um, I haven't seen, I don't think they released, any of them released their kind of quarterly breakdowns, but that's a, that's a uh, it's a thing, right? It's a, it's a big deal. Um, any thoughts particularly on those companies before we get to the, the broader trends? You, you know, um, this is a glass half full, half empty sort of, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> discussion, right? So uh, the $10 billion that came out of Super right. uh, in, in NSW, right, that got spent on Super Retail, exactly. uh, you know, buying G, uh, buying like Under Armour gear yeah. And, yeah. And, and buying television on, yes. on JB, uh, AJB yes. Hi-Fi. So look, it's great, right? It's yeah. great that the spending was up. Yeah. Like I've ever always said, um, 
Uh, these are not the companies I would invest in. Like, I would not even touch them with a long barge pole. Largely oh, because, right. like, again, like, there isn't much growth here. And you really need to be paying. Like, yeah, there is. Well, so so I distinguish between one-time sugar hit and and you know so I'm going to almost predict that. So here's the thing, right? Uh, There's a lot of extra cash that has been injected, whether that's via JobKeeper, that's via the you know the uh, the payments to the businesses, uh, one-off payments to the businesses uh, during the pandemic. Then there's the super withdrawals. This is like you know 100 billion, 200 billion uh, dollar sugar hit. Borders are closed. People can't travel anywhere. So you know what? What's you know what's more expensive these days? Dogs. <laughs> if you want to buy a puppy? Yes, they are. They yeah. Are. So you know, I looked at you know we were looking at you know puppies, and I was talking to my neighbor, and you know he, he was surprised to hear that puppies are actually worth like five thousand to ten thousand yes, dollars right now. Yes, yes. Um, oh, and what we discussed, and what we we came to the conclusion. Uh, is that you know once the borders open, there'll be a lot of puppies available for adoption, because people will be looking because when people will be going to Europe and they will discover the cost of a puppy dog hotel is hundred dollars per day. Well, yeah, since yeah. this, and I'm not blaming people. Uh, yeah, what I'm saying is this is exactly human behavior, right? So pe- yeah. human behavior is that. So I, you know, here's the JB Hi-Fi is on a PE of twenty. Uh, I don't know if I want to buy a PE. It's and guess what? Given the pandemic. In last five years, the shares have basically doubled, right? So, you know, again, this is not a company I wouldn't have expected it's going to double. Uh, that's my bad. But I, I don't know. Like, I mean, to me, this looks like the, the compares at some point are going to look very, very difficult. And then people are going to say, oh, well, we're back to organic growth. Uh, and, and to Jeremy Hi-Fi's credit, though, like, I mean, it has, it has weathered a lot of different things. And it has been a very good manager of... Uh, of what it does, but again, fundamentally, you know, there are only so many Australians who are buying these things, right? So, and there's only so much that we're going to buy. Um, so that, that's my take on retail, really. Like, you know, retail should be a slow growing, like, you know, 3% earnings growth, uh, or 3% sales growth, 3, 3% Right, unless, unless you're taking meaningful share from somebody or doing something else differently. If you're, yeah, if you're a big established the, player like Super, Super Retail or JB Hi-Fi, there's not much left to take share from. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, typically the big ones are the ones that are, you know, they lose share to the you know, the guys like, you know, Kogan and things like that. So, the disruptors come and try to take share off them. So, I don't know. Again, it's all very interesting. I think this is positive in the short term for the economy um, because people, are, at least it shows that people have savings and people are spending. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get me interested in any of these companies. Uh, and I'm happy, to, very happy to be on the sidelines for these ones. Nice one, mate. I like that. Um, I, I, we actually have got Super Retail as a recommendation in one of our services. Uh, largely, funnily enough, for income. It's a really nice yielder about 50% ago. So uh, we've, done, we've done pretty well with that one. But uh, you're right. The 20% growth is clearly not sustainable. In fact, I said elsewhere, in fact, I wrote something earlier this week, I think it was. Um, I, I, you know, Investors should expect negative same-store sales growth this time next year. Not because the businesses are terrible, not because they're going anywhere else, just because those one-off boosts simply can't be repeated, let alone you know, even, even getting the same level of sales is going to be hard. Right, we don't look at the same percentage growth. You can't grow another twenty percent on top of this. Um, if we've all gone and bought, I don't know, as you say, fitness gear or camping gear, or um, you know, uh, I guess maybe be, you, know, you eat the quince paste, maybe you go back for more. But the, the reality of the, the things that, that gave them those boosts go away. We go back to normal. You can still get really good growth on twenty nineteen levels and be negative in twenty twenty one versus last year because of that that same impact. So I, I think I, I don't think well personally, I don't think people should necessarily worry about. The volatility. Um, maybe if they are overpriced, to your point, Doc. Maybe it is time to sell if you if you're of that view. But certainly, 
you should be at least prepared for negative same-source sales growth and the market may well freak out as a result. Stupidly, right? Like we should expect it. If the market freaks out now, like I can't help you. But equally, just, just be prepared for that mentally and emotionally because it may well happen that this time next year when JB Hi-Fi sales are down 2% and people go, oh, same-source sales are down. Remember, they're up 20% this year. So that's not a bad two-year compound growth rate if it does eventuate at that sort of level. Yeah, I quickly add, like, just to yeah. just quickly add, amplify the point that you're, you're making there. Like, I'm not advocating selling. What, what I'm basically saying, like, you know, you need to know why you bought it in the first place, right? So if you bought exactly as you pointed out, super retail uh, group, because it was, a, you know, decently priced with a decent yield and you're happy for that, that's great. Yeah. And, and you know, so there's a purpose for, uh, you know, I think that it's, it's good, I think from an investing point of view, it's good to know why you bought a particular company, mm. why it's there in your portfolio, and uh, and what you expect of it, right? Yeah. So so I think that that's the last part, right? You know, don't expect 20% sales growth going into the future um, because that's unlikely to happen and that's just going to make people disappointed. I like it, mate. Speaking of which, though, the, the impact of that is interesting because... We've seen some really good economic figures, right? And and that's again, should we expect it? Is it glass half full, glass half empty? You can you can you know, argue about either of those two things and, and not be wrong or right about either of them necessarily. It is what it is. Interesting though, City are out this morning, effectively saying that we should brace I mean, you know, whether to literally brace or not, I guess that's a different question. In their words, brace for earnings beats, which is a whole lot of jargon, which basically means City saying they think the market is underestimating the earnings delivery of some from a lot of companies on the ASX. Essentially, I think if I if I read between the lines, they're saying that that forecasts by analysts are lower because of the pandemic than they need to be because of the response from the pandemic and the growth we're getting economically since the pandemic, or at least since the worst of it. We're still in it, of course. Um, they they believe that the economy has performed better than maybe many analysts have priced into their models, and therefore there is potential for outperformance come February and March as companies report those earnings. Um, I thought it was interesting, mate, for a couple of reasons. I think it's it's worth remembering, and you're a big you're a big fan of you know changing your mind when the facts change, as am I. Um, if if that if City's right and and investors are still pretending or, or thinking not pretending, it's the wrong way to use. Just simply not factoring in the fact that the recovery was better than we thought. So come back to March, April, May, we thought everything was going to be terrible. If you haven't upgraded your earnings, and again, those retail numbers that you mentioned or, or we talked about are a great example of exactly that, right? Whether they're sustainable or not is a different question and how you should price those, different question. But the sheer reality of those sort of sales growth rates have to be priced into expectations. I guess, you know, we don't really invest on the basis of, as we said before, one earnings season or, or other. Um as, as a shareholder man, as someone who owns my own shares in a portfolio, someone who recommends shares to our, to our members, uh, as we both do, I wouldn't be super unhappy if we get big share price jumps in February and March. And it makes it easy to be an advisor when, when we've got some good results to show. So I guess I, I, I'm, I'm hoping City's right. Um, I, I thought though, just for me, mate, what I, what I took out of that one was just that element of people not adjusting their expectations for the circumstances, whether they are ideologically locked in whether they are looking backwards too much whether they've simply just not paid attention to the changes um i would be really surprised if if well i would be surprised if companies beat earnings expectations because tends to happen from time to time i am a little bit surprised if analysts aren't upgrading their expectations though your, your thoughts yeah so yeah so i think i think city is probably right i'll 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 group that into two two bins so i think what is uh, i think there are companies that have fared way better than 
you know, general expectations, right? So, yeah. um, you know, these would be companies like, you know, for example, JB Hi-Fi, Super Retail Group, Nick Scali, and things like that that have done really well, that had, you know, that managed through the pandemic just fine. Then there are, there, uh, in fact, he actually benefited from all the cash infusion. Then there are, of course, companies like REITs and so on that have actually suffered because people didn't pay them. Um, and, you know, like so the mall operators and things like that um, who have suffered. So so there's that group. The, I think there's, the, there's a third group. There are, there are companies which have uh, significant earnings exposure to overseas earnings uh, and mostly U.S. dollars earnings. Actually, I think those will be negatively impacted because the dollar has become stronger yeah, uh, yep. over, the, over the... So there's, those are sort of the... The things to watch. None of these things are big deal. But mm. for example, if you owned a small tech company in Australia that has say eighty percent earnings from uh, from the U.S. or you right. know, let's say North America, and, and the expectation basically had you know a seventy cent um, conversion rate, and if that conversion mm. rate is now mm. eighty five. <laughs> that's a pretty big hit, actually, yes. and and therefore, if you if therefore your your model could have an expectation, but you'll actually not deliver on that uh, expectation. So there's a lot of I think things here at play, and and I agree that you know if you if you know of it, you should sort of you know you should be prepared to accept the change and therefore not be shocked by it. That's um, a bit that surprised me, man. Like I think, as you say, that things have changed. Not that they should have. Yeah, you know, if you had a forecast in July one. I wouldn't. I wouldn't blame you for it being wrong because I think the rec- economy has recovered faster than I think almost any. I don't see. Didn't see anybody with forecasts of the sort of recovery we've had. Right. So it's not so much that. It's like if you now in in January <laughs> haven't reflected those numbers that, that the facts that we know in your forecasts. Um, I I don't know. I, I, I again I don't want to. I'm not trying to criticize or condemn anybody, but it does really feel like a sense of just just as a clinging to ideology or clinging to history or some sort of inertia. Just I want to change my forecast because I've made it. I look silly if I do. I just know, I don't know why you wouldn't have updated it by now, at least. Well, I think some people do. Like, I mean, you know, if the, if the city people are saying this out in a note, then the city analysts probably have seen the note, and then they're mm. probably up, updating their models, and maybe other, you know, again, like I mean, the number of analysts following certain companies is relatively small, right? And people, you know, probably the model. Sometimes the models move slowly. Mm-hmm. Just again, like it depends. Like, I mean, how much importance do we pay to beats? Um, my take on earnings beats is like if you have like only five people following a company or six people following a company, it's like basically, in my opinion, unless it's a super steady company, you basically just getting noise because you know, like I mean, what does the average of that, what does the consensus of that mean? If you have thirty people following a company, maybe the consensus means something. You know, like the law of averages doesn't even start working unless you have enough samples in it, right? Uh, so, so I think there's that element which which I think we need to keep in mind the and, and that I think can be an advantage if you're an individual investor mm. just because the the consensus or well there is a consensus that consensus is actually nowhere near what I would call real consensus because it doesn't really have enough input to be a consensus <laughs> and yeah, therefore you can have it's much easier to have a variant perception uh, and say well you know even though this company is followed by 10 people the, the, I, I can be different from the consensus so I think that's, that can be an advantage that an individual investor can sort of leverage if they're doing some work on it. So, again, some random thoughts, but yeah. No, I like them. And the very perception that the key one, of course. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Speaking of variant perceptions, uh, one I've been variant on to my 
absolute massive long-term cost is Afterpay. I have been wrong on that one from the very, very, very beginning. Uh, I was I was only speaking to someone uh, only the other day and I was reflecting on the fact that I looked at the Afterpay sales deck they were giving their potential retail customers early on where they were showing the sort of sales growth they were getting, in, uh, the retailers were getting by using Afterpay. And I, I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's a really compelling sales document. No wonder the retailers are signing up in droves. And then what did I do? Nothing. <laughs> Did I buy the shares? No, I did not. Um, and mate, $144 was the last number I saw for Afterpay shares, probably higher by now, quite frankly, because uh, these things only go up and, and up with a with, with a bullet. Um, this time, it seems the rationale for the increase, I mean, continuing to succeed, which is great, is a US competitor that's listed on the US stock exchanges. And that has given Australian investors some sort of benchmark or, or at least an ability to look at other businesses you know, listed outside Australia away from here and say, hang on, how do we compare versus that one? It's a funny story, mate, because the share price is up since the listing of Affirm is the name of the US business. Um, we've said before many times that often Australian tech and Australian blue chips both can be, if not overpriced, at least you'd be a little bit careful because it's such a small pool. If you're chasing tech, there's not many places to go to put that money to work. Um, yet this is the reverse. This, you know, it seems like the investors were undervaluing Afterpay if the Affirm listing is even close to being valued correctly. Do you do you have a, a reflection on Afterpay or the Affirm comparison or how we should think about these businesses side by side? Yeah, so like, you know, Affirm is a business that have have had on my radar to have a look at. Uh, I haven't had a chance to read the S1, which is a really, mm-hmm. S1 is a perspective, it's a long document, and I just haven't had the time to actually read it. Yeah. So I don't really have a view. It looks like it's a buy pay later. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, run by one of the PayPal, PayPal called, you know, mafia people. So it's run by really credible people. Uh, it had got great venture backing behind it. Its market cap is around 26 billion right now, um, US. So, I mean, uh, you know, I say you guys have recommended it for Motley Fool Pro and done very, very well. So congratulations, by the way. That's a yeah, remarkable success. Well, well, it's not not as early as you know one would like to be for uh, <laughs> for Pro. Um, we, we did recommend it even in, in in a service called Discovery even earlier than that. Um, so 2017, it was. So that, that I, was happy, I was happy to be at least be part of that team, so I, I can I can claim some partial credit <laughs> on that one. Even if even so, if I've I've lost myself an absolute small fortune by not buying it myself, so uh, I'll, I'll take I'll take I'll take a tiny bit of credit with with the rest of the team on that one. But uh, certainly, yeah, should, should have should have known better. Yeah, so I mean, you know, right now it looks like they're both sort of you know one is twenty six billion US mm. the and afterpay is about forty billion Australian. The the trick with these things is it's really. Like I mean, you know, there's a you can justify a forty billion dollar valuation. You can justify a twenty billion dollar valuation, right? And you can justify a ten billion dollar valuation. You can justify a hundred billion dollar valuation. So it, you can justify anything. Um, question really is how you sort of see the disruption unfold. And I think that in many ways, the fact that a firm has come public. Uh, it's just adding, in my opinion, adding more credibility that buy now, pay later is a category, right? And if you took a, if you took a, if you talk in terms of total revenues or of these companies, then I think Firm and Afterpay are like neck to neck, almost neck to neck in terms of the total revenues. So like, I mean, I don't know, in my view, it's it's very early days for this thing, right? I mean, yeah. this you total amount of commerce that happens um, electronically, is like in trillions, right? I mean, so the, you can think of these companies as having opportunities of, you know, these addressable markets are huge. Multiple players can be there. And, and, mm-hmm. and you know, Afterpay is by far the benchmark, 
right? Now, whether or not a firm becomes the benchmark or there, both, you know, it's a duopoly, again, there's right, Zip right, right. and so many others uh, out there, right? There's Zip, there's Hazel. So, you know, this is this story is unfolding, and, and I think, you know, as long as there's customer uptake, there's consumer uptake, there's retail uptake, you know, uh, you just, I think this is one that deserves watching closely. You have to study how, uh, you know, on when they report what's going on. But yeah, like I'm excited by what this can do. And what I think the most important thing for me is this is what I would want to see a lot of other tech companies in Australia do, right? right, right. This is exactly an example of what tech can do and how tech can actually. You don't have to be local, right? I mean, you can be a small country, you know, down in the southern hemisphere, you know, a small island, but you can actually propagate things worldwide because tech really travels and travels fast if you have the right tech and if you have the right, you know, management team. So I, I really, I, I think, Afterpay team is top notch. Afterpay, you know, when I look at this, you know, the presentation deck, it looks like you know, it just has come out of like it's it's a it's a top tech players presentation deck, you know, it's done, it's slickly done, it's presented properly, the the conference call runs like, you know, um, it's a great conference call. So again, uh, their slides are detailed and in fact, so I think it's great. I, I, I think I, I really appreciate what these guys are doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, let do, do something for me, mate. Um, if you look at Afterpay's success, uh, so my, uh, look, I'm, I'm a, I'm not a contrarian necessarily by nature, but I do try and look at both sides of the argument. And when I look at the Afterpay success, and I think that's they've done a spectacular job. I put them in kind of Fortescue in very, very different molds. But two of the more recent success stories are genuinely built a global business from literally nothing. Now, you could get businesses more different than Afterpay and Fortescue. But the, you know, the Australian business that, that's kind of built and gone global, uh, maybe CSL before that is probably the, the most recent other big, big, like genuinely globally dominant business. I can't think of many more that kind of fit that category. Now, Afterpay is probably early in its journey compared to those two. But as you say, making every post a winner. It's easy slash tempting though to use hindsight bias, say it's been successful, therefore let me say, let me work out why it's been successful and therefore that's why it was, as opposed to other things like just pure luck or, you know, how many, how many you know, is it survivorship bias or hindsight bias where other businesses doing the same thing just didn't succeed. So I guess I should reflect on that, but also to the extent we can put that aside as I no, no, these guys genuinely are better and did deserve that success where others have failed. And I guess like I look at Zero maybe as a business that tried to go to the US and didn't really quite crack it in the same way it might have. Um, so, you know, we could have, we, if, if Zero and Afterpay were reversed, we might be saying the same things about Zero that, you know, uh, look what they did and that's that's why they're successful. In fact, the things they did haven't been successful. Uh, so can you just give me a sense of, as you say, you say, look, these are, this is the great example, this Australian company done good, being globally successful. Um, do, do you have anything just for our, for our listeners that kind of, quantify or typify what they've genuinely done differently if you can separate hindsight bias from from the rest and say look you know these were the things that if other australian businesses copied would give them a much better chance of success what or or as investors if we saw that happen again we we should jump on board because these things kind of typify that success is there anything that you can kind of point to and say these factors seem to have been most useful or important yeah so it's it's actually that's probably very hard right i mean it's hard because (laughs) it's a hard question question. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really hard question, and it, it's yeah. hard because. Um, so I guess you know, like if you think about these sort of ideas, right? I mean, as you, as you rightly pointed out, for like you know, you ten of these things try, you know, you try ten, and probably one works out, and nine doesn't. Right, right, exactly, uh, yeah. and that's the reality of these things. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I think one of the one of the things to think about is a sort of execution strategy. So 
one of the beauties of so one of the beauties of internet based technology is that you can copy right yeah yeah right so so suppose somebody has you know a particular software that's doing really well say in america you can copy it you know australianize it and then deploy it here but you know the problem with copying is that you're only going to have the local market maybe you'll have new zealand right and you'll have nothing else beyond that so so that that is going to limit your scale so what, what i think they thought about is you if you think about a problem globally and you try to solve um i guess a global pain point then i think your market opportunity is large so i think that is one of the fundamental differences the other thing i think they did you know uh well was they tried to enter the u.s market early enough right and oh, okay. and i think so so you know going there in you know establishing mm-hmm. a case here going there ahead of time and some of this is luck you know right the, the, the existing incumbents there didn't really bother mm-hmm. uh replicating the solution uh, so some of those things I mean, zero to, in my opinion, is a success, right? I mean, it's a $20 billion company, which is still like relatively small um, uh, compared to like a, you know, an American company. But, uh, but I mean, it is still a global player. And it's, you know, the, the thing with zero is it's not just growing, you know, one would expect like, you know, $20 billion market cap, which would be like maybe about 15 billion or, you know, 14 billion in the US. In a $14 billion market cap business in the US, I expect grows at 50%. Um, you know, 40%, that's sort of my sales expectation, uh, sales growth expectation. Whereas, you know, $20 billion ASX company probably grows at like 15%, uh, 20%. That's why, you know, uh, that's my expectation. That's what I mean, the market's expectation is the market probably is happy with that sort of, you know, so there's, I think, different expectations of different markets. Uh, and that, I think that's something, again, people can factor in when they're thinking about it. But I think, you know, zero is, is a genuine success. Um, I would say A2 Milk is a, is a genuine success, again, trying to, um, you know, become a global brand this is really hard right trying to be a global brand so yeah. is, is there a, is there a specific formula that you can look at no but I think it's just the approach that uh, companies take in terms of ac- accessing global markets uh, I think is something whether or not you're solving a niche problem versus a a global global opportunity that's the other thing to think about so if it's niche then it's always niche whereas if it is um, you know whether TAM or total addressable market is in trillions that is not niche right and therefore you have a shot at you know at like the absolute gold prize there uh, or the gold medal so so that sort of thing um, and good execution I think is the other thing but again there's nothing no specific uh, you, to answer your question, I'd say there's no specific formula, and I'm happy there's no specific formula. But if there is a specific formula, uh, then you know everybody would do it. Then you know we, none of us will have jobs. So it's good that there are no specific formulas. <laughs> <laughs> That's very very true, mate. When it comes to um, some of that success, I, look, I, I want to I want to give I say huge praise. Right? Investing investing in a site just as a business. You know, bank card, the Australian, you know, the Australian bank card, literally called bank card. We, we, old people like me and other people, still call credit cards bank cards in some in some form. I try not to do that. Uh, but the bank card card that was run by a consortium of Australia's banks was the initial big payment platform. It went effectively out of business. They shut it down because Visa and Mastercard were so dominant, so 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 strong and dominant were the global players that the Australian bank card, as a, as a standalone standalone credit card, just simply couldn't exist anymore. Had no place in the market. For Afterpay to quite literally, as you say, it's part tech, part finance, part um, part kind of consumer offer, right? It's, all, it's always part retail in, in a strange kind of way. Understanding the customer that, hey, if we had this product, it might work. Retailers will love it. Consumers will love it. We've got the tech to do it. Um, 
to be able to create, literally invent a payment method that can take on Visa, MasterCard, Amex, PayPal. Uh, I'll throw Bitcoin in there kind of only, only to, to one side. But if you think about those platforms that are global platforms, largely out of the US with the exception of, of, uh, of Bitcoin, which is arguably from somewhere, depending on who Satoshi is, um, the the whole, I, I, I am still flabbergasted at how well Afterpay has managed to muscle into an area that in theory, I would have almost said was largely impenetrable. Pre 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 afterpay. If you'd said, look, give give me odds on, a, a, you know, a small new type of plant payment coming from some smallish economic force as a country. So whether it could be here, could be New Zealand, could have been I don't know, anywhere else, Japan. Um, I would give you really, 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 really small odds on that being successful. I, I'm just still flabbergasted at how well, incredibly well they've done. Uh, as you say, between coming up with the idea, a bit of luck thrown in there, a bit of hindsight bias, but man, it's an impressive story, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, it's absolutely in, in, impressive. I think it's, it's good, right? I mean, that sort of success will drive other entrepreneurs to consider going global and and taking, you know, giving global a shot. I think that's, that's fantastic. Nice. All right, let's, uh, let's move on a little bit. <laughs> Speaking of speaking of success, mate. Speaking of amazing, Netflix, the the business that invented. Speaking of inventing new ideas, right? If you think about the idea of you know a business took on establishing comments, free to air television networks, subscription television networks, video stores, movie theaters, and has just gone from strength to strength to strength. Netflix added thirty seven billion customers. In the most recent quarter, that is a phenomenal set. Now, again, pandemic, sure, you know, I'm not saying they they invented it themselves. They certainly had a fantastic tailwind. The shares are up 17 percent overnight. This is a 260 billion dollar company. Um, mate, this this business can do pretty much no wrong. I, I, I'm I'm not surprised it keeps being successful. I think we've talked about it before. There's room for more than one streaming platform, and you know, we've got lots of freeway networks, lots of subscription televisions, lots of entertainment, you know, options. Netflix being added to that for a super cheap price a month is, is not a not a you know not a surprise that it's doing well. But man, that's just a phenomenal phenomenal success story. Now, I should say the PE is still 100, by the way. So this is not this is not a cheap business, and the and the the, the growth in the in the price certainly expands the multiple. But I, I don't know, mate. 37 million customers added in a single quarter, even given the size of its business. I mean, that's we say 37. Oh yeah, it's a global business. That is the equivalent of one in every eight houses in the US. That's, I mean, yeah. You know, to add that in one quarter, now it's not all in the US; it's global and everywhere else. I, I don't know. I can't. I can't. I can't think of a company that big that's grown so well, so quickly. Even even given the the tailwinds. Yeah, phenomenal. You know, and it, you know, I was just looking at that because you know I sold my shares at dollar two hundred two ninety or so. So it's effectively doubled from where I sold them. Uh, oh, sorry. To hear <laughs> uh, so so there's that. Um, I think here's the thing, right? I mean, sometimes when you have such phenomenal businesses, I think my my thing is that you have to you should probably give them a lot more rope because these things that are global businesses, uh, you know, such loved brands can continue to grow for a long, long time, right? I mean, technically, the the addressable market for this company is pretty much every household in the world, right? Mm. Every household in the world would love to have Netflix. Provided right, right. there is a price and a plan that they can access yeah. it, which is exactly what they're doing, right? So they've got these mobile-only plans, for example, for India and Indonesia and places like that, mm-hmm. where you can access it with, via your mobile device at a much yeah, che- right. cheaper price. So um, I think again, innovative companies innovate. They, you know, great business leaders innovate. The other funny thing is that you know this company has, I believe, yet to turn free cash flow positive. It's 
a heck of a thing, so, right? So that's another thing, you know, another another thing of, you know, yep. when you have the, yep. the direction right, you can actually get away without actually ever turning free cash flow positive. Um, here's the other funny thing. I think actually the shares are up not just because of the results. The shares are up because the, they've said that, well, you know, we, we can turn free cash flow positive next year or next year, the mm-hmm. year after. They're actually doing a buyback. Wow. I try to be cynical and I, and I try I mean like I'm not a hyper growth investor like you are and I do so you know I, I'll be honest I, I you know I, that, I'm impressed with the business performance but as you say mate the, the combination of uh, I, I don't know it's 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 remarkably expensive at any sort of earnings level it's not delivering free cash flow it's buying back shares we, we know that a feature, and we should probably this probably in a different context, but one of the features of modern day investing is we bring a whole lot of earnings forward, right? If you knew how big GM was going to be in 1910, you could have paid a lot of money for those shares, but if people didn't. They kind of said, okay, well, maybe there's growth coming in. And the outperformance of GM for, for the first half a century, not, not so much recently, was largely because they just kept growing it at a decent rate time after time after time. And people kind of benefited because they paid a decent price for the shares and the, that decent price remained. And they just kind of got the earnings benefit as those earnings compounded. There's a hell of a lot of earnings being bought forward for tech companies. There's now a hell of a lot of, and look, I'm an Amazon shareholder. I'll absolutely say Amazon's probably worse in air quotes than Netflix on this score. So I'm not throwing stones. There's a lot that's baked into current prices that that maybe in generations past, investors would have waited to see the color of the money first, wouldn't they? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's all true, right? I mean, but here's the thing, right? You've you've Mm. got Netflix with 200 million subscribers. Yep. That is, there's no reason to believe that it can't have a billion subscribers. Wow. Do right? you reckon? If it, well, I think it One can, in seven right? people in the world. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong, by the way. Just if you think about that number, that's a phenomenal number. But if you just, but if you think about the number of people it added just this yeah. year, right? I mean, that's phenomenal too, right? So yeah, exactly. Have, what, yeah, exactly. Could, that's right. Like it could have, like I mean, that's what I say. You know, that's why I use the word global business. You know, business yeah, should be global yeah. because the, your opportunity is unending in that sense, and yeah. and you can pivot in so many different ways. So so I mean, that's that. I think I, I, I think as it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, I think it you know it can generate a lot of cash, like any other, mm. I guess. Uh, cable company did in its good days, right? <laughs> uh, or a telco did in its good days. Whether or not the valuation is right, I mean, it's uh, it's a tough question. I mean, and whether or not the buyback, or th- th- there is at least some talk of buyback. I'm not 100% sure exactly what it is. Um, you know, so... Right, there's, there's just so much in there, isn't there? I, I, look, I, again, I'm not... Uh, what, what do I know? But I just, I just... I look at that and I really do worry that so much is being bought forward earnings wise I, I wonder what's left you know like I, even even if you say even if the price is justified to get market beating growth from here you have to believe it's justified but there's still some sort of growth left for the for, for the earnings and for the, and the for the p i mean you know eventually when netflix is a mature business with a p of 15 or 18 um i mean profit's got to grow up fivefold just to get to that so so profit grows fivefold from here and the PE is now reasonable or average for a mature business. Now, maybe maybe the business adds more customers for much longer, but a lot of that's already factored in, right? Like the next the next five bagger of profit is factored into today's price effectively. And then you've got to get, then it's still got to grow to, to match the market over the next 10 years. And then it's got to grow faster than that again to, to, to you know, to earn a market beating return. 
is there is there a point at which you kind of go, this is now big enough or too big, or um, you know, as, as businesses get to maturity, get to, to size, do you just simply hold them because you've always helped them? If you if you didn't own them, when do you stop buying them? Yeah, like I mean, I sold uh, I sold my shares. I mean, I held them for many years and I sold them, but my concerns were different. Um, I thought I thought my my concern was that competition has now finally arrived in many different yeah, okay. ways, whether it's Disney, Peacock, Apple, so many different ways, you know, com- competition. But, you know, I was actually wrong, I think, at least in the interim, uh, about my views on competition. Uh, so I, I think what the share price basically is saying is, and to your point, that not only does Netflix become even much bigger from now, mm-hmm. and at that point it has that, it will have other streams of revenue that it does not have today. I think that's what the share price is basically saying. Right? Yeah, right, okay. And, and whether or not you believe that is really like, I mean, that's, you know, there's no way to model that, right? I mean, you can't model. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so the thing is that you can't model whether or not Netflix is going to be in sports or whether Netflix is going to be, say, in sports betting, right? As an mm-hmm. example. Uh, so it, it, it does, live, does live streaming, does some augmented reality, um, does uh, you know some uh, sports betting alongside that. That's a completely different mm-hmm. line of business that is not going to be factored in today because you don't know what is there in their R&D, right? Pipeline. Now you could say that they have done some experiments and work, right? So they've done this, make your own content or design your own content type of storylines, right? Where you could choose what type of content and how the content is unfolding. Those are very early experiments of, you know, what I call three-dimensional content delivery. So yeah, right. So you could do that, you could mix that with sports, you could mix that with, you know, some sort of gaming. There's a lot of potential for an innovative team. So like, you know, when, when I, like my take really on technology companies is like the ones that are to be held and to be held for long term, you look at the type of people, like if they're the best people leading it, they hire the better, the best people, you know, the, the, the top flight entrepreneur hires the top flight engineer, the top flight engineer then hires other top flight engineer. And there is a short supply of those people, right? There, there are not too many Peter Thiel's around, for example. Yeah, right. There's really only one Peter Thiel. So, you're making a bet that these guys are going to be continuing to, you know, and, and I say guys, but you know, guys and gals are going to be continuing to deliver outperformance uh, via, you know, innovative products and continue to expand markets, eat other people's share and so on. So that's, I think, the bet people are making and you have to be comfortable with that. Um, you know, yeah, again, Again, the other funny thing I'll point out is, you know, this company doesn't have free cash flow, but it does have earnings, right? So, I mean, there's that. <laughs> so, and if you look at earnings estimate out to 2025 on, on a capital IQ, I mean, the earnings estimate for 2025 is $27.60. $27.60. So I mean, on that, it's actually on for the 2025 earnings, it's priced like at 25 times, mm. and and this is still growing at that point. So I mean, you know, you can just if you could justify the price and saying that well, you're paying 25 times 2025 earnings today. Mm. Um, 
you know, which which could mean that you have no growth uh, in share price between now and twenty five times, and that well, is that's, the that's, that's my that's the thing I think many people tend to miss, and, and again, yeah. only at point of maturity, right? They, they, so most people don't miss it, or those who do miss it actually miss the reverse, which is don't worry about a too high a PE early in the business because there is so much potential for growth. Netflix at at five dollars, right? When people said, oh, the PE is too high, well, they've they've grown you know at a phenomenal rate since. So you, you can the bigger the bigger mistake is probably looking at early stage businesses or maybe something after that, but you know, medium, moderate stage businesses, I'm not sure what to call it. You know, you don't want to underpay for those businesses. But at some point, if you've got a P of 25 in five years time, that would mean no growth from now in the share price, zero. And soon the market goes up 10% a year. You're already 50 percentage points behind. And at that point, it's still 25 times earnings, which if the growth is over, is, is still expensive. On the flip side, as you say, if they've got 15 years worth of growth left and they're going to double and double again between now and then, uh, even even that 25 times and 25 might be cheap. Yeah, and I think I think you're right. Again, it depends really on how things shake out. So there's that. Very good, mate. I want to finish with a single piece of mailbag because I I love this and I want to highlight it. I want to I want to I want to spend a bit of time over uh, overemphasizing this particular piece of mail we got because it came from Sean. And I want this, we talked about super earlier and we talked about some of the disappointment I've got with government policy and what people might have done with their super. And again, only a gentle rebuke, but, uh, but a rebuke nonetheless. Um, here's, here's, the re- here's the result, right? Here's the reverse of this. So Sean says, great podcast and info as usual. The best thing we ever did for our investment journey was finding your podcast and subscribing to some of your services. We've been going at it now for about two years. The wife and I squirrel away every spare cent we can plus... I take any overtime I can. Now get this, mate. He says, which I call, or which we call, share shifts. And to our amazement, our Comsec has just hit $125,000 and we are about 63% in the green, not factoring in any dividend reinvestment. You guys are changing the lives of everyday people like my wife and I. Thank you to both of you and fool on. I mean, I just, you know, like I'm not saying it for, I don't want the credit. I don't, I don't give a stuff who, who gets the credit for this stuff. What I want to make sure is that um, our listeners understand the sheer power. You know what I love about Sean? His wife, he's doing overtime. They call it share shifts, right? Any overtime money they get is being put straight into shares. You know, I'm doing a share shift tonight. I'll get an extra X hours and I'll, I'll put that straight into shares. I don't know how long, he says he's been listening for two years. Let's assume that they've been able to save that money. 125 grand in two years, by the way, if he's done that, is spectacular between he and his wife. They're saving hard, mate. They're investing well. At that sort of rate, they're going to have a seven-figure portfolio way sooner than I think even they would have imagined. Um, and it's just, I just want to share it, mate, because it's a, hopefully a really um, motivating, I hope, approach for some of our listeners. People who will say, I can't possibly save any more money or I can't possibly work any more money or how can I possibly get ahead? Some people can't. Like, I absolutely get it, mate. If you're on the breadline, you're in a, a really low-paying job, you've got lots of bills, I get it. I'm not going to criticize anyone for, for doing their best for their family. But I will also say... If you're making the easy option, the easy out, which is I can't possibly do this, Sean and his wife, who've done such a spectacular job, um, two years, 125 grand. They're up 63%, by the way, uh, which frankly is, you know, if you invested a lot of money in March and April, you did well just because the market recovered. But fortune favors the brave, mate. Fortune favors more than the brave, the prepared, the ready, the person who was doing it anyway, right? If you're if you're there when the luck show up, then you get the, you get the value, right? You get the results. Sometimes turning up is, is kind of, almost as much as you need to do so um, Sean thank you mate for sharing that I'm just I, I, I was I was stoked when I read it mate it made my day um, probably made my week quite honestly this is kind of why we do this right like yeah we get paid for it yeah we love picking stocks yeah we love talking business but if we can help people like Sean and hopefully our other listeners do anything like that and and really 
you know, set themselves up for some spectacular long-term success. I'm, yeah, again, I, I don't, want, I don't want the credit personally for, for me or for you, for us, for the Motley Fool at all. I'll take it if they, if they want to give it to us. But far more importantly, mate, is just the the example that I hope Sean and his wife are for everybody listening who's saying, I can't do it or I can't do any more. Man, that's a spectacular result, isn't it? That is fantastic. That's just mind blowing. And I think that the, the, I want to just talk. Uh, not take too much time. The, the one point that you made there, which I think is really important to highlight, is that, you know, A, at this rate, you can actually get to that seven-figure very, you know, much faster than you would otherwise get to. And the other thing is that once you get to sort of that figure, you know, think about it this way, right? 10% of that is like 100K. Yeah, that's right. Right? So exactly. when you get that, that is almost like financial freedom, right? Because that's where mm-hmm. you, you start seeing that, well, you know, you've saved enough, you've grown it enough that at that point, your compound returns are a significant milestone for you that you know you actually have the option you know instead of, you can actually give up those share shifts at that time and say okay i don't need to do the share shifts anymore because you know my portfolio is doing the right. share shifts for me so, so yeah, yeah that's yeah, that's, that's, I, that's a really that's a really great point i like that a lot yeah the portfolio yeah. is actually doing the doing the work for you now because it's you know i, I mean there's, there's an old line mate that they say you know your first million is the hardest right and it's designed to be both a bit of a laugh and also kind of, yeah, of course it's dirty. If you get a million dollars, yeah, of course it's the hardest. Um, and, and most people don't think they're going to get there. So they kind of laugh it off as some rich man joke. And it's not easy to get to, by the way. But gee, I don't know how, how old Sean and his wife are. But I mean, if you can add that again over the next, call it call it five years, let's say five years, right? If they, can, if they can add another 100 grand over five years with those extra shifts, I don't know if they can, but let's say they can. That's 250 grand at that point. The first 125 has probably gone up again another I don't know, 50%. So maybe that's, you know, they're probably at that point looking at 300 grand conservatively. You can leave that and do nothing to it and just let the market do its average 10% return a year. In 14 years, there's your million bucks. In fact, it's more than that. It's $1.2 million in 14 years. I mean, it's, it's it, they, they literally, they say the first million is the hardest. Again, it's a bit of a joke. I reckon if you can get to six figures, and you've got enough time left, time will actually do the rest of that work yeah. for you. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's you know, inve- investing, I think, most people give up, unfortunately, and this is what I say, unfortunately, they give up too soon, right? You just have, you know, investing is a slow, or at least the way we, we think about it, is, is a slow game. It's like That's test nice cricket. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like a test cricket. You just have to play slowly, <laughs> slowly, 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 slowly. Uh, there are exceptions to that rule where, you know, the te- yeah. test k- cricket ends quickly. But, but, <laughs> but, but putting that aside, you know, it's really Don't a test cricket. cricket. Mate. It's been a terrible, come on. We're having a good podcast to then. The test cricket was actually fantastic. I I thought this was one of the best. This was the best test cricket I have seen probably in the last decade because this was fantastic. The you know it just made me think that this is you know the classic test cricket. This is the uh, you know it had the elements of T Twenty. It had the elements of you know the you know the gentleman's game as we used to call it maybe a long time back. Uh, It was fantastic test cricket. I loved it. It was great. Pretty good, isn't it? Anyway, there you go. So, Sean, thank you for sharing, mate. Really, really stoked. Thank you for sharing it. For, for us, thank you for sharing it for the inspiration of our, our listeners. Um, seriously excited about that. Look, if you are on social media, we'd love to hear your stories. Also, your questions and comments. We say this most weeks, but I want to throw those out because um, the best way to get to us is via the socials or via email. I'll give you that detail in a minute too. Um, if you do want to join Sean and others chatting with us on the socials, let's start with Twitter, mate, because we're all there. At um, Anirban Mahanti is Doc's Twitter handle. Mine is at TMF Scott. P. The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Use any of those and you'll get to us. If you're on Insta, which Sean was, by the way, an Insta, Insta comment from Sean, at The Motley Fool AU or at TMF Scott P. 
If you're on Facebook, you can hit us up, The Motley Fool Australia. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and I'm Scott Phillips Money on Facebook. You can email us as well at info at fool.com.au. Give us a go there. Um, mate, I reckon we're pretty much done. Do you reckon we come back tomorrow or sorry, come back on Sunday? I, is it that, that's not even a question. I just presume <laughs> that that is true. I just, I just uh, do it to hear your response, really. That's just the, this, that's the default trip. <laughs> it really is. So we will come back on Sunday. But uh, before we do, make sure you can hear that Sunday episode by subscribing if you haven't already to the AAA Motley Fool Money podcast. Do it through iTunes, do it through your favorite Android podcast app or do it through Podcast One, our broadcast partner. Um, if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, leave us some stars. Uh, written reviews are also nice as well. It helps people get a flavor for the podcast. Uh, not all those reviews are positive, by the way, Doc. It occasionally makes me yeah, just you know sit back a little in my seat when I read some of them. But uh, thank you to those who've taken the time and effort to, to give us a review to let other people know what the podcast might be able to do for them. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Sunday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.